they say radio is television for ugly people. That would mean that podcasting is radio for ugly people who also have no talent. That's where I come in. My name is Hrach Demiurge, and this is the Bread and Onions Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is the Bread and Onions Podcast, a uh, the audio arm or audio version of breadandonions.com, covering a lot of the same ground. Breadandonions.com is a new satirical journal in the spirit of the satirical newspapers started by Armenia's greatest satirist, not very well known outside of Armenian circles, named Hagop Baronian, but hopefully that's going to change soon, uh, as I've just translated his, uh, what is regarded by many as his masterpiece, often, often translated as uh, national big shots or big wigs of the nation, but which I've chosen to translate as, more accurately, as Armenian big shots. That is, is done. It's, it's, it's going to be coming out in the next few months, hopefully, in the fall, if I can finish it over the summer. And so breadandonions.com is, uh, is going to be serving as a, as a platform for my own original satirical writings in addition to translations from Baronian's lesser-known works and articles that have never been translated, uh, snippets of the book, previews of it, building up to its eventual release, and much more, uh, which we will talk about in uh, uh, later episodes. But for today, uh, for this first episode, all I wanted to do was read my introductory article, which is a sort of a nice entry point into the into this world of bread and onions as a as a justification for satire as to why I write satire and in general as to why anyone writes satire, the purpose of satire. And so uh, it's very cleverly titled Why Write Satire. Now I'm, I'm not going to be reading it all the way through. There's no reason for that. You could go to breadandonions.com and read the article yourself. I'm going to be reading it and using using it as a jumping off point for other commentary. Or I'll stop and I'll, I'll footnote it. I'll footnote my own writings to expand on a part of it, except uh, the footnote is nowhere in the text. Footnotes are at the bottom or the foot of the page, except it's not anywhere a part of the text. It's just a, what I like to call a mouth note, because these notes are straight from my mouth. So hopefully, as I'm doing this, uh, it's not going to be as eloquent as the writing itself, because the writing is very well thought out. It was uh, written, rewritten, re re rewritten, re 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 rewritten, and so it's been polished to near perfection. My mouth note slash footnote comments on certain parts of it are just going to be from the hip. I'm just going to be shooting from the hip. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't, I don't sound too stupid as I'm, as I'm talking about it, but here we go. The article is called Why Write Satire? Subheading, a metaphor. In the not so distant past, it was taboo in many cultures to so much as lay a finger on the body of a king for any reason. 
Sir James Fraser tells us that in the year 1800, the reigning monarch of Korea died of a tumor growing on his back, though lancing it with an iron needle would have probably saved his life. Another king was suffering from an abscess on his lip and was on his way to share the fate of his predecessor, until, that is, his doctor made the fateful decision to call in the court jester. The king laughed so hard at the jester's jokes that the abscess burst from the force and strain, almost certainly saving his life. Mouth note here, uh, Sir James Fraser is the famous uh, is the famous classicist and anthropologist. He is author of many different books. The the one that this quote comes from is from his um, is from his uh, magnum opus uh, t- titled uh, "The Golden Bough." It was very influential on artists in the early twentieth century, such as T. S. Eliot and um, James Joyce and various other modernists. While being a giant in the field of anthropology, specifically the history of science and its relationship to magic and religion, it's still, for me, it hasn't been surpassed, uh, certainly in scope. It was very, very ambitious. He, he amassed an enormous amount of material on uh, all manner of almost, in some cases, prehistoric magical rituals from all over the world, strange taboos that various nations all over the world have and share with one another, one of them being, in this case, a taboo on touching or laying hands on the body of a divine king. Fraser's work is um, sort of fallen out of fashion because uh, some of his methods are called into question. He, uh, he's accused of making, uh, making uh, the evidence that he found fit his argument as opposed to being led by the evidence, but that's, that's sort of neither here nor there because his work, The Golden Bough, in 12 volumes, is still a monument of scholarship. It's one of the most well-written, the most fascinating books I personally have ever read, and I highly recommend it to anyone, uh, especially anyone who's interested in the relationship between uh, magic and super, superstitious magical rituals, where those come from, how Fraser says that they're inherent to the human brain, how it's a mistaken view of cause and effect. Already, humanity understands that every, every effect has a cause, but magic is a, a mistaken connection between a cause and an effect that really aren't cause and effect. And then how that progresses to religion, when people realize that magic is nonsense and that a, a person uh, dancing under the sky in, a, in a, a rain dance and sprinkling water all around him isn't a valid cause of the rain that f- uh, may or may not fall afterwards. And so people become religious uh, saying that all these powers are out of their control, and so it's best that they pray to a, a higher power to intercede for them and to send rain on their behalf, and then how science comes after that when people realize that there are no higher powers to pray to, to bring rain, and that rain is the collision of the two clouds, and et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting. Uh, it's one of the few books that I've read that I wasn't annoyed by the the importance placed on modern science usually capital s science people who believe in science as if it's a religion almost uh his his book was one of the few where i see the he shows the progression very clearly 
and uh, he's not annoying about it, uh, as if science was a, a new religion that ha held all the f the truths of nature, which it obviously it doesn't. Um, you'd have to go to philosophy for that. But that's James Fraser. Moving on. It's not clear in Fraser's account, but the decision to bring in the jester by the physician was almost certainly an example of a bon mot attributed to Voltaire that the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient until nature cures the disease. Nonetheless, the story is instructive as a metaphor in which the king represents the nation, the tumor and abscess are corruption, the iron lance, criticism, and finally, the jester, satire. Because most people treat the body politic as if it were as inviolable as the body of a divine king, they refuse just criticism and fail to enact reforms, which allows corruption to grow and spread throughout the nation. It's then that satire comes in to indirectly tend to the unsuspecting sick. Mouth note, this is the thesis of the, of the article, essentially, this uh, metaphor for satire, the, the, the king, the div this divine king is the, the nation. When the nation is sick and there's, there's a corruption somewhere in it, people are, they're not willing to address it. They'd rather close their eyes and turn away and the corruption spreads and it metastasizes and it gets worse and it eventually leads to the, potentially to the downfall of the nation. But because people act this way, the way that this divine king, the way that many cultures and their divine kings, who you can't lay a finger on, act, satire is the last resort uh, of a corrupt nation. Satire raises its head most frequently and most forcefully in nations that have lost their way. And this is the point of, for example, the great Roman satirist uh, Juvenal, who in the very beginning of his satires, in the first satire, he goes through a litany of the crimes and the immoral behavior of the Romans of his, uh, of his era. This is, I th believe it was the second century, or was it the first? But already Rome had did considerably degenerated. And um, Juvenal's justification for satire was when all these terrible crimes and uh, vices are being paraded in public, he says, it is hard not to write satire. Difficile est saturam non scribere. It is hard not to write satire. In other words, it's easy to write satire when a society has become corrupt and when everything around you is ridiculous. It's easy to ridicule when everything around you is ridiculous. I see, a, I see a sentiment in the comment section of YouTube videos very frequently under comedy or satirical uh, uh, videos in which there's, there's always a comment that says, this isn't, even, this isn't even satire anymore. This is a segment from the news or something like that, which I guess, which I guess is almost like a variation of what Juvenal said. Satire is almost like the antibodies, like your white blood cells that mobilize to fight off some infection and perhaps to cure it, perhaps to not. Moving on. Since every Armenian, individually and collectively, is a divine king shrinking from the needle that would otherwise save their life, bread and onions comes onto the scene. 
If nothing else, we'll have a laugh as nature either cures the disease or extinguishes us entirely, in which case we'll have nothing more to worry about except owing Asclepius a cock. Mouth note on that one. Um, owing Asclepius a cock was a part of Socrates' last words uh, when he was going to be executed, you know, drinking his uh, cold draft of hemlock after the Athenians, um, the Athenian democracy had convicted him of uh, corrupting the youth and uh, going against the Greek religion. His last words were to one of his friends, uh, he said to, to Credo, he says, uh, Credo, we owe, uh, don't forget to, don't forget to give Asclepius a cock on my behalf, something like that. So what is, oh, so when, when someone got sick uh, at, at the time, uh, if they recovered, they would have to sacrifice a cock to Asclepius, the god of medicine, uh, as an appreciation of their convalescence. Socrates saying that, invoking that tradition, right when he was about to be executed, uh, has given rise to a few different interpretations of what he meant. Some people think that by saying that, he was going against the charges that were leveled against him, and that he was saying, I want you to do this, I want you to discharge this specific duty, because I'm conforming with the religion that these people are saying I'm against. So it's a kind of uh, almost that he's, so his behavior flies in the face of the accusation and that they're putting him death for nothing. That's one definite, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is uh, much more um, morbid. Uh, Socrates uh, is saying uh, uh, right at the, uh, right before he's going to be put to death that his friends should on his behalf sacrifice a cock for Asclepius as if by dying he's being cured of life and that life is a disease and so that's the more I would say that's the more popular that's the more popular interpretation that's the interpretation that that Nietzsche uses against Socrates as proof that Socrates and all other philosophers are in Nietzsche's words decadent Decadence. Uh, these are these are decadent. These are men who, uh, who who view life as a disease and have denied life, as opposed to Nietzsche's philosophy of embracing life at all costs and whatever, whatever. So that's that's the meaning of owing Asclepius a cock. It's it's in the Phaedo, Phaedo or Phaedo, depends on how you uh, want to say it. So Socrates' last words there. And what I'm saying here is that with bread and onions as in the role of the jester coming onto the scene in order to treat the ills of specifically in this case the armenian nation which everyone knows everyone anyone who knows anything about armenians knows each and every armenian individually thinks of himself as a king who will not listen to anyone else's advice on anything because he knows everything himself and he he commands everyone and obeys no one each and every Armenian is this divine king shrinking from the needle, protecting some moral failure or some other, you know, fault that won't allow them to live in a purely virtuous way or in the best way possible, I should say. But they're because they're not willing to listen to any of it. And the the the, the response is going to be, who are you to tell me what to do? You look at yourself. There's absolutely no ability to 
look at oneself in the, in the mirror and say, oh yes, I, I do have that tumor growing on my back, or I do have that, that I do have that fault. Very few people are willing to admit, admit faults. And I think that's a human thing, but it's, it's especially pronounced among Armenians. Why that is, who knows? But Brad Nunyans is that jester who comes in at the end when the patient is out of options. And hopefully Brad Nunyans can lance that boil or if it's you know located in the right place, laugh it until it bursts. Or, and if that doesn't work, we'll have a good time. We'll, we'll have some laughs and either nature will take care of it. It'll just go away on its own, which was what most people do when they have like a toothache or a part of their body hurts, by the way, including me. So I'm like that too, but, but I'm also not like that. I am and I'm not. I'm a know-it-all, but I'm also an idiot, which truly has, has helped me a lot in life and hurt me, of course. I'm a little bit of everything. So either, either nature's going to cure it, it's going to go away on its own, or it's going to, you know, it's going to, you know, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us everything and uh, we'll cease to be, in which case, you know what, even that's not so bad. Whatever, we'll, we'll owe Asclepius a cock. We will be free of, of this disease riddled with suffering that we call life according to Socrates and many other philosophers. So that's, that's what I was getting at there. And so here we go, keep, keep, uh, keeping on. Uh, here we go. Uh, no mere metaphor. Lucretius famously compared his decision to use poetry as a medium to expound the difficult scientific and unpopular moral philosophy of Epicurus to his countrymen to a medical doctor's use of honey around the rim of a cup of bitter medicine, quote, that the unaware child may be tricked to bring the cup to his lips and meanwhile drink up the bitter juice of wormwood and though deceived is not harmed, but through this trick recovers and regains health. Close quote. But this is better said of satire and comedy in general than of poetry. Poetry may be like the sweet honey that makes the bitter medicine go down, but the effect of satire, which is laughter, is more potent than poetry, because not only can laughter make bitter truths more palatable, it's no mere medical simile. Physicians quite literally use laughter itself as an anesthetic to facilitate their otherwise excruciating sawing, burning, and stabbing when they administer nitrous oxide, more commonly known as laughing gas. No dentist ever used poetry to make a tight-lipped patient say, ah, but even these humorless sadists know the utility in making their victims say, ha. Mouth note. Uh, Lucretius, of course, is the Roman poet who wrote the long didactic poem on the nature of things in Latin, De Rerum Natura. He was explaining or propagating the philosophy of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, of the third century BC, I believe. And Epicurus, Epicurus's philosophy was controversial in Rome for a number of reasons. One, his physics tended toward atheism, or it was thought to tend toward atheism because in the Epicurean view of the universe, which was adopted from an earlier Greek philosopher named Democritus, who had gotten it from someone else, but Democritus is the, the best known, 
as advocating for everything in the universe was made up of like of, the, of these tiny microscopic particles that are invisible to the eye known in in Greek as atoms atomos which literally means uncuttables these these smallest units of matter which compose everything in the universe and these atoms fall through an empty void and they in colliding with one another they by chance form all the visible things of the universe democritus and the epicureans viewed the universe as having come about through chance and not by divine providence most people think epicurus was an atheist but because of that but but he believed the gods existed but he said that their bodies were made up of finer and subtler atoms and that and also that they had no they had no dealings with the human world that they were that they were far away and because they were perfect beings they they took no interest in human affairs and so people took that as being essentially atheistic so whereas epicurus didn't say the gods don't exist him removing them from the affairs of mankind made it de facto atheism although it it wasn't exactly atheistic some people say that he was an atheist but he was afraid of coming out right and saying it so he he removed he simply removed the gods from human life and from the world and thereby sort of eliminated um what he would call superstitious terrors of a life after death and so forth so the romans being a very traditional and sober and very religious people pe- people don't i think i think your common person doesn't realize just how religious the romans were and just how tied to their ancestral religion they were throughout their history and the atheistic the the part of epicurus's philosophy that tended towards atheism did not sit well with the romans secondly the other aspect of the epicurean philosophy that made it difficult for romans to accept was the fact that epicurus discouraged involvement in government and politics the point of the epicurean philosophy was peace of mind in greek the word is ataraxia complete peace of mind unperturbedness it's almost like a buddhist what the goal for buddhists is and so that being the case he discouraged his followers or he discouraged them from getting into politics and, he, and encouraged them to live a life of contemplation and peace and cultivating moderate pleasures of the body food drink and good conversation with friends the 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 view of uh, the epicureans in later times as hedonists meaning people who are devoted to physical pleasures and to excessive physical pleasures is as one of the many misunderstandings of ancient philosophers and the ancients in reality epicureanism has nothing to do with hedonism in the modern sense it's hedonistic in the very narrow philosophical sense because hedone in greek means pleasure and for an epicurean the goal of life is pleasure but not pleasure meaning immoderate indulging one's appetite immoderately in order to secure pleasure you had to take everything in moderation it's actually quite brilliant uh, and it's true 
if you're going to derive pleasure from food, you have to do it in moderation because if you eat too little, you, uh, you're miserable. If you eat too much, guess what? You're also miserable because, you're, because you, you make yourself sick by eating too much. So if you're going to take pleasure in your food, you have to do it in moderation. And if you're going to take pleasure in any sort of physical desire or appetite, it has to be neither too much nor too little because both of those tend to make a person sick. And so it's very reasonable, but later generations, especially I think with the Christians they sp- and the Roman, not only just Christians, but the Romans, there's a famous anecdote about a Roman general when the Romans took over Greece uh, for the first time. A ro- one of the one of the natives, uh, I think it was one of the natives, was explaining to this general what the Epicurean philosophy was all about. And the, remember, the Romans are very religious, they're very sober, and they're very political. They're very practical. And so when he heard, when he was told all the tenets of the Epicurean philosophy of ataraxia, meaning peace of mind, withdrawal from politics, a peaceful, quiet life, uh, the, the idea that the gods exist but are so far away that they don't interfere with human affairs and they take no they take no care for man's destiny when he heard this he said may our enemies entertain such a philosophy as long as they are at war with us because obviously uh, a people who will not engage in politics uh, and think that their life is not being guided by a by providence would be easy to conquer, hence the Roman general's uh, uh, comment there. And so, not popular in Rome, and so it was Lucretius's job to, to change that, and um, he did to some extent, because the poem is, is, is wonderful, and it, and it contains so many, so many memorable passages, but one of them being the fact that it was up to Lucretius to find a way to get Romans believing in Epicureanism, to convince them of its uh, truth, and he says, I, I chose to write it in, po- in sweet poetry in order to make the otherwise objectionable parts of Epicureanism to the Romans much more acceptable. Just like a, a doctor puts honey on the rim of a, of a glass containing bitter medicine. Uh, the, the medicine in the case of Epicureanism being, remember, to, to, to cure people of their superstitious fears of heaven and hell and the god's wrath and and so forth and that's the end of that mouth note so let's continue on with the article a few more metaphors hago paronian armenia's greatest satirist rightly disavows any serious intent for his moral masterpiece armenian big shots because most people react to the word moral the way our loyal canine companions react to the word bath in the first paragraph on the first page of the preface, he writes, quote, No matter how much doctors vouch for the great digestive benefits of laughter, Lycurgus set up statues to the gods of laughter in the Spartan mess halls, or finally, Plutarch call it the foremost seasoning for meals. We, in publishing this work, have not at all intended it to aid the, the digestion of readers with sensitive stomachs, nor to stimulate the appetite of finicky eaters. If this work is to succeed at all, it will pluck a few smiles from its readers. Close quote. 
uh, footnote on this one. Uh, Lycurgus is the the semi-legendary Spartan or Lacedaemonian. Those words are synonymous. Everyone knows Spartan, but the the name of the people is the name of the country is Lacedaemon, and the people of the of the nation, the city state are called Lacedaemonians, the capital city of Sparta. So Lycurgus is the semi-legendary lawgiver of the Spartans. Uh, Plutarch is the Greek essayist and statesman. He wrote essays. His essays are grouped in a volume called the Moralia because of their moral content. He's a moralist. And then uh, his other book is a, um, a comparison of the the lives of famous Greek and Roman generals and commanders and famous uh, men, uh, comparing one Greek commander or general to a Roman uh, g- general or commander, and uh, and then and then so comparing and contrasting these two in the, in in what were sometimes called the parallel lives. Now it's interesting that Baronian, disc- he in the very first sentence of in the preface of the, of his book Armenian Big Shots, him referencing Plutarch. And also Lycurgus. Uh, Plutarch wrote the biography of Lycurgus. That's mostly where our information comes from, from Plutarch. Plu- uh, uh, the fact that Baronian mentions Plutarch on the very first page of this biography of famous Armenians is significant because people say that his, his book is, was influenced by, by Plutarch's book of biographies. Other people say, no, that's not true. It's only superficial because... Baronians are sat- sat- these are satirical biographies. Most of the the men he's writing about, he's making fun of. He's not extolling their virtues. It's not Plutarch's at all, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they 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 uh, they cite a French a series of um, French satires in a uh, magazine called Polichinelle uh, as Baronians um, more direct influence and. Certainly, the, these, those French satires from the period that Baronian read and afterwards decided to write his own series of satirical biographies, certainly that, that, that was an influence. But to deny that Plutarch and his biographies were an influence, I think, is uh, silly because it's right there. It, it, it's, it, it can't be overlooked. He mentions Plutarch later on in the book as well, and contra- he contrasts his work with Plutarch's work about how Plutarch generally, he talks up his figures. He's celebrating his figures, whereas Baronian is mocking them, but that doesn't mean Baronian's isn't something of an anti-Plutarch, which still is has... To be and so to be the complete reverse of something is also to be influenced by it, especially when you're when you are specifically uh, referring to it the way that Baronian does here. Anyway, so he denies all serious intent in a very humorous way, but um, he's doing what Lucretius did essentially. He's uh, he's he's putting honey around the rim of this cup of very bitter medicine to make it go down. And and here we go. We I continue, and I'll read it. Uh, and then uh, there's only one last mouth note. So here we go. We're in the home stretch. His true purpose, of course, Baronians, was to diagnose and treat the nation's moral ills, which for him included the breakdown of the institution of marriage, the dismal state of education, and the decline of religion, all caused by the degrading power of money and self-centered interest. Did Dr. Baronian's bitter moral therapy sweetened with laughter succeed? A therapy as unsuccessful as the saying goes 
when it cures the disease but kills the patient. I don't know how to assess a situation in which the patient survives, continues to have the disease, and also kills the doctor. Now, mouth note, I'll stop here. Uh, this is a reference to the death of Baronian. Baronian died a very bitter death in abject poverty. He was essentially starved to death by the Armenians of Constantinople and all of, and all of the Armenian world as well, but specifically the Armenians of his native, not his native, but the, the city in which he lived and worked in that weakened state uh, where the man very literally would go to bed hungry. He, in that weakened state, he was much more susceptible to tuberculosis. And so tuberculosis was the thing that did him in at the, at the end, which then also killed his wife. It killed his daughter and left his son an orphan. And then the Armenians of Constantinople and in, in Western Armenia, because I, I believe they sent him back home within to the, to the provinces, if I'm not mistaken. But even his orphan son had a very, very difficult time. The, um, but anyway, Baronian, the doctor in this case, uh, was starved to death, was killed by the patient who continued to have the disease. So I don't even, I don't even know what to make of this. If, you were, if you're a doctor, you cure the disease, kill the patient, you're not a good doctor. If you're a doctor and your patient lives but still has the disease, all the same moral corruption that Baronian railed against, and they kill the doctor. I don't even know. I don't even know how to how to assess that. How, how to make a how to make a judgment on that very tragic uh, circumstance. Um, certainly, you can say that Baronian failed, and um, he failed at his mission to to lance the boil. But then again, or, or to lance the tumor, or to burst the abscess. The corruption remained. It, rem it remains to this day. But the patient's still living, kind of. It's in a weakened state. The patient, in this case, is the Armenian nation. They're scattered to the four corners of the earth and, um, and showing signs of uh, you know, falling apart at the seams in a lot of different ways. And a lot of the same vices that Baronian railed against are still raging. They, they haven't been diminished in the least. No lessons have been taken from his writings. And so... It's almost like a, a martyrdom of, uh, of Baronian. He threw himself to the, to the lions and the lions devoured him. Even though he didn't succeed, the endeavor was bold and brave and selfless and noble. So it's, it's a bit of everything. Um, but, but that's why I say killed the doctor. Um, and then so we'll finish up here and the, no more comment will be necessary. Um, and we'll we'll end here uh, for for today. All right. So these are the the last the last paragraph of the of the article. Not only are there no subjects among Armenians who are one and all divine kings, there are no patients among them either. But all are doctors, and by doctors in this case, I mean in the following sense, from Baronian's aforementioned work in the chapter on Doctor Stepan Aslanian. Quote, when I see a murderer standing trial who is futilely denying his guilt, I'm amazed why he doesn't just turn to his judges and exonerate himself by saying, I'm a doctor. 